0: In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armorall, Less work, more clean. Terms apply.
2: fast Gas Podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So, thank you. All right, now for the show. It was cold that evening. Not just the biting autumn air, but the concrete on which George Bess found himself lying on. Just moments before, George's driver was taking him home after a typical day at Renault headquarters in Boulogne-Billancourt. But this trip ended unlike any other evening because George would never make it to his front door. He lay on the cold ground, bleeding out from four gunshots to the chest. Two assailants fled the scene, abandoning the baby stroller they had hidden weapons inside. In seconds, Renault's president was dead. Who would want to kill the head of one of Europe's biggest automakers? How did he come to power in the first place? And what repercussions did this horrific act of violence have on the rest of the automotive world? This is the assassination of a Renault president.
3: Dang, that was a fire intro. Damn, dude. That intro was
1: fire. I legit just checked my windows and the calendar because I was like, it doesn't make sense that I'm getting chills.
3: (laughs) It should be warming up right now. It's not.
2: Uh, Welcome to Past Gas, Uh, (laughs) the Donut Automotive History Podcast. Home edition. Home, that's right, we're still inside, but that's okay, because I'm having a great time with my boys. Uh, I am Nolan Sykes, joined as always uh, by my friends and co-hosts, one James Pumphrey. More power, baby. <laughs> and <laughs> Joe Weber.
3: Fired up. <laughs> uh, oh
1: my god! I love your catchphrase, dude. It's
2: a great catchphrase. <laughs> uh, a little inappropriate, I think, for the topic today. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right, today we are uh, talking about the assassination of George Bess. He was Reno's president, and he was uh, gunned down in front of his home. Very strange story. This will just be a one-parter, but kind of a meaty one, I think. Um, Guys, how are are you guys doing right now? I'm good.
3: Doing doing great.
1: I'm in my garage. Uh, I took the weekend and set it all up for like a workspace and uh it looks great thanks man i really appreciate it um and yeah so i'm happy in here pretty stoked it's sort of like in high school when you used to decorate your room and you didn't have any stuff that's sort of the vibe in here and it really like took me back
3: (laughs) you have a reservoir dogs poster in there (laughs) i'm uh
1: honestly i have a tab um on ebay open and i'm gonna get a bunch of like
2: lady and sports cars posters <laughs> <laughs> Shall we shall we get into it boys Yeah I yeah. want to hear this story All right Well let's do it The story begins in an unlikely place Kenosha,
3: Wisconsin Hell yeah, Kenosha. Yeah, you're That's where from Melvin Gordon from the the San Diego Chargers is from. <laughs> I mean the LA Chargers. <laughs> Uh,
2: so, yeah, before we get to the killing of uh, George Bess, we need to understand the history of a little American car maker called AMC and how they came to be. The Thomas B. Jeffrey Company had built cars in their humble Midwest plant since 1902, enjoying decent success for their size. In 1913, the company debuted the Jeffrey Quad, one of the world's first four-wheel drive trucks. The army had requested a replacement for their four mule wagon teams, and boy, did the Jeffrey Quad deliver. So the Quad uh, was powered by a 312 cubic inch four banger called the Buddha. Uh, The engine and differential put the power to the uh, ground uh, in all kinds of terrains like dirt, mud, and snow. And Jeffrey even made a variant with four wheel steering. This versatility would come in handy when the Army eventually used these trucks on the battlefields of World War I Europe. In
1: 1916, former head of General Motors Charles Nash decided he'd run his own company and founded, you guessed it, Nash Motors. He quickly acquired the Thomas B. Jeffrey Company because, you know, he liked. Guys who named companies after their name (laughs) and continued building cars like the Jeffrey Quad, as well as new models. Nash also brought innovations like flow-through ventilation, the process of getting cool or warm air from outside the cabin to inside the cabin into the mainstream.
2: Very important innovation. Uh, Before that, it'd just be a very stuffy cabin where your farts would just hang. (laughs) And it probably got really warm and humid in there. And I'm glad that they Man, did this. He's <laughs> like, hey, what if, What if we, like, poked
1: some holes in this box? And everyone's like, wow, I never, what a genius. Way to think, Nash. Well, I've been
3: smelling my thoughts for way too long.
1: <laughs> my wife won't ride right in my horseless carriage with me due to my terrible, terrible thoughts. Charles Nash left the company in 1937 and chose a guy named George W. Mason to replace him. Mason had worked in the industry at companies like Studebaker, Chrysler, and for some enterprising brothers by the last name of
2: Dodge. Yeah. You ever heard of him? This guy worked. Uh, he was just like, he had his uh, hands in kind of the all of the early automakers. So he knew what the heck he was doing.
1: He learned the ins and outs of the industry during its fledgling stages. But for the last 10 years, George had been working for appliance manufacturer, Kelvinator.
2: <laughs> hell hell yeah. yeah. Whoa, dual uh, thought, dude. What's said, hell yeah.
1: <laughs> named for William Thompson, the first Baron Kelvin. This guy discovered absolute Zero, which, as you may know, is the lowest temperature possible in thermodynamics. It makes sense for a company that makes refrigerators to use his name.
2: Yeah, I want my fridge to hit absolute zero so it takes seven hours for my pizza rolls to thaw out for sure.
1: Yeah, I don't want edible food. I want food that sticks to my tongue and face. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you guys know that they, they tried to uh, get absolute zero on Earth? And they can't do it because the the vibrations from around the world heat it up just enough to keep it from absolute zero,
1: dude, I'm feeling those vibrations, man, <laughs> yeah, me too, dude. if there's one thing I can say about Earth and like pretty much everybody says this, it's like vibes dude <laughs> yeah everyone's everyone says that, <laughs> yeah, yeah dude, everyone's like, if you ask anyone from anywhere, even if they're not from Earth or whatever, you're like, hey, what about Earth? they're like. <laughs> Oh, huh. vibes. Dude. Oh, you know, you've never the,
3: been, the... but I heard the vibes are pretty on point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I heard they can't even reach absolute zero, dude.
3: <laughs>
2: Damn, that's pretty chill. <laughs> Nash named Mason his successor, but George had a catch. If Charles wanted George to run Nash Motors, Nash would have to buy a controlling stake in Kelvinator and merge the company into the automaker uh George complied and the company was then known as Nash-Kelvinator. The experience Kelvinator had with cool air appliances allowed Nash to make another huge innovation in their cars, air conditioning, which I am also toot, ba- toot. Yeah, very thankful f- extremely thankful for. If there's one That's my number one
1: car innovation.
2: Yeah, I think so too. It's like indoor plumbing car mm-hmm. air conditioning. Yeah. Uh Uh, Pizza rolls. Pizza rolls. Yeah. Penicillin. (laughs) Penicillin.
1: Eh, Yeah, close (laughs) fourth. (laughs) Shortly after the merger, Nash Kelvinator found themselves producing war machines once again with the outbreak of World War II. I mean, everybody who manufactured anything (laughs) uh, anywhere in the entire world, you know, we cover like a lot of history stuff, both in this uh, and in Up to Speed and Wheelhouse even, um, world war one happened they stopped doing what they were doing and started building stuff for world war one and then they're like okay let's go back to doing what we were doing and they do it for a couple years and it's like ah another one and then it's like dj cow another one (laughs) and then they gotta like it's like all right i guess we're not making cars or refrigerators or anything right now we're making planes and bullets and stuff yeah for sure um which is sort of what's happening right now with respirators.
2: Well, I mean, remember back to the uh, Ferrari uh, episodes that we f- first started out with. Um, it was Alfa Romeo was had to make uh, trucks, you know, war trucks as well at the same time. Yeah, and-
1: Alfa Romeo, um, GM, Ford. Uh, uh, Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson. Uh, who else? Any, but Volkswagen. Yeah. Uh, they were on the
2: bad guy's team.
3: Fender guitars? Um, they had to make war guitars?
2: Watch
3: <laughs> out!
1: I thought you were going be... <laughs> <out! laughs> to be serious.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Nash Kelvinator began their wartime output in late 1941 when they started producing the Pratt & Whitney R-2808 Double Wasp. Coolest this name air ever, cool, dude. dude Double wasps? Uh, how many wasps? <laughs> Two <Yeah>. wasps. <laughs> Two. What's, hey, one... what's, the, what's the scariest bug? A, I don't know, a bee? No, scarier. Uh, a big bee? <laughs> no, a wasp. Oh, yeah, that is pretty scary. Two of them. Oh, f***. Oh. <laughs> this air-cooled, two-speed, supercharged radial aircraft engine had a capacity of 46 liters <laughs> and oh could God. produce 2,000 horsepower. I'm sure Jay Leno has a car powered by Probably. one of these. Probably, <laughs> this engine was used in Navy fighters such as the F4U Corsair. Yeah, a plane with bent up. That's one of those
2: ones that um, it's it the has its wings, wings are can very bent up. Yeah, its wings are very curved upward. Um, because like at the bottom at the bottom part of that curve, that's where they put the landing craft, and that's so they could put a bigger propeller on the plane. To help it take off oh. and uh, go faster. from Because it had to take off from a ship. From a ship, that's correct, yeah. From yeah. a carrier.
1: I, the Navy, shouts to my Navy boys. Uh, I thought about joining the Navy for a long time. Um, wow. And dude, just like aircraft carriers are the sickest stuff. Yeah, they're, they're insane, so man. cool. So much going just on. It's like, dude, giant city on the water that they launch fighter
3: jets off of. Yeah. No,
1: this is what I thought. The F four U Corsair, so like it's one of those bendy up wing guys.
3: Yeah, yeah. I I can tell yeah. you, like, spent time uh, looking into joining the Navy because you you know they have the terminology now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the official term, the bendy up wing guys. No, but like the wings aren't only like um, bowed; they to also fit fold the large up. Yeah. They fold up so you can fit a, a lot more of them on a ship.
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: that's
1: why. That's yeah. cool. Nash Kelvin also developed a variant of the F-6F Hellcat and another for the fearsome Northrop P-61 Black Widow. A twin-engine, twin-tail-boom fighter designed specifically to fight at
2: night. Hell yeah, these things are so sick.
1: These planes were typically painted dark colors like black and dark blue to blend in against the night sky and hunted their prey with onboard radar. It was the first of its kind. Nash Kelvinator was also the largest American producer of the most advanced yet overlooked machines of World War II. Helicopters.
2: That's right. Uh, while most people associate helicopters with the Vietnam War and airborne cavalry, rotor-driven aircraft were not uncommon during Two. Both the Axis and Allied powers relied on helicopters for uh, reconnaissance, search and rescue, and, uh, of course, supply runs. Uh, Nazi Germany was the first country to pioneer rotor-driven technology and used helicopters as a powerful propaganda tool, flying their advanced machines as a show of military might and engineering prowess. A Russian immigrant to the US by the name of Igor Sikorsky started his own aviation firm in 1923, and by World War II, he was constructing helicopters for the US. Demand was so high for these aircraft that Sikorsky had to contract production to outside firms, which is, uh, as James mentioned, something pretty much every manufacturer did in wartime. That's also how Nash-Kelvinator ended up producing those Pratt and Whitney engines. Nash-Kelvinator was contracted by Sikorsky to produce the R-6A helicopter, a two-seater craft that could reach a top speed of 100 miles an hour. The British Royal Air Force used these helicopters to great effect in airborne observation roles. What they would do is like spot for artillery batteries mile, miles away, and, you know, they'd call out if uh, if the shots were getting close to their target or not. Um, Nash Kelvinator was able to produce... A little two- to the
3: right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going back up.
2: <laughs> Nash Kelvinator was able to produce 200 of these aircraft over the course of the war, which is more than Sikorsky and the rest of the aviation industry combined. Dude,
1: I can't imagine anything more terrifying than riding 100 miles an hour in like... A 1946 helicopter.
3: Oh my god, that's so scary! <laughs> like old
1: cars, yeah. Old cars are like pretty, you know, wonky to drive. Uh, like the inputs aren't very good, and they're like kind of floaty and rickety at the same time. And there's no seat belts or anything. But you just imagine being like, <laughs> well, when the war ended, Nash Kelvinator pivoted back to customer automobile production. Uh, Another company with a similar trajectory was Hudson Motor Car Company, based in none other than Detroit, Michigan. After the war, Hudson debuted new models, including the Super 6, which was notable for being about a foot lower than the competition, but having the same amount of room inside. Dude, sleek.
2: Just like low. They're so sleek. It's like the Lancia Stratus of its time. I really want one of these things, man. They're so cool looking. I'm really I wish because of the script I'm like super into like post-war uh sedans now uh the older I get the more I like stuff like that like when I was younger I
1: was like why would you even care but I don't know if I mentioned this in the last podcast but it's still going uh I was the other day I was like watching um Little Women with Casey okay it's you know we're watching a lot of stuff it's quarantine and uh (laughs) I found myself being like, "Man, that is a nice (laughs) carrot." Like, look how. I wonder who that that coach builder
3: was,
1: (laughs) (laughs) right? Yeah. So I like can totally see like fifty year old me. Like that's my like project is (laughs) I like have a barn and I'm restoring this like. Nineteen nineteen
2: horse-drawn carriage, just like it's like period correct. But I'm making a few upgrades. Yeah, yeah it's
3: slammed. You put
2: some, you put some rotiforms on it. Yeah, yeah. It's like just dumped on bags. <laughs> that would, I, I kind of want to see that now. It's
1: yeah, dude, Just like just a ripped horse. Like <laughs> no, I got no, this no. horse. Yeah, you gotta got to slam. the horse. horse too. You have like a like a little <laughs> <laughs> like a little miniature <laughs> <Yeah>. horse. <laughs> Yeah, just like a short, but like stocky, like super buff, (laughs) buff horse. Just like the buffest horse. I got him from Hungary. They're they're the only people that make this kind of horse. All he eats is creatine. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's one of the only. They're the only horse breed who eats meat. (laughs) And it's like he's not fast, but he'll pull a stump out of the ground.
3: He's like the diesel horse. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's his name, Joe. That's his name. Oh, dude. His name is (laughs) Diesel. Vincent Diesel. Hell yeah. Um, Anyway, so the the Super 6 was, again, notable for being lower than the competition, um, but having the same amount of room. Uh, The advanced unibody chassis had a very low center of gravity, which improved cornering ability. Hudson embraced performance with the release of the Hudson Hornet. Uh, if you've ever seen cars, that is a Hudson, the old, old Hud, guy, yeah. right? It's a Hudson Hornet. Is yeah. A, yeah, he's the Hudson Hornet. It was a two-door coupe powered by a big bore, 308 cubic inch straight six engine. The engine's dual carburetor setup meant the Hornet could not only hang with V8 powered competitors like the Chevy at ovals, but it could beat them too. The Hudson Hornet cleaned up at circle tracks through the late 40s and early 50s, and according to one allpar.com article. Great website. Great website. The racing success might have been the only thing keeping the large Hudson coupe in production. This kind of flies in the face of the old racing adage, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. And the Hornet wasn't doing big numbers, but Hudson kept
2: it around because it was kicking absolute booty toot on the track. Yeah, it was so dominant, but... Hudson was still a pretty small automaker. They weren't selling. they weren't competing with Chevy sales wise, but because uh, because they just kicked Chevy's ass so hard, they they had they had no choice but to keep it in production. you know. We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. All right, so why are we talking about Hudson? Well, back at Nash Kelvinator, George Mason had a realization. He knew that Nash's relatively small size allowed the company to experiment with their car designs, and that was great. But Nash Kelvinator didn't quite have the same oomph to take the fight to the big three. That, that was Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler. Uh, Nash Kelvinator, the product of one merger, would have to merge again with other like-minded companies. Who George had in mind was Studebaker, Packard, and Hudson. Unfortunately, Stude and Packard were not interested in a merger, but Packard would later partner with the new company. Uh, on May first, nineteen fifty-four, Nash-Kelvinator formally merged with Hudson Motors, and so began the American Motor Company, also known as AMC. Is it uh,
3: Mitt Romney's dad? Wasn't he the president of AMC?
2: Damn it, Joe! I had a review. <laughs> <laughs> nah sorry You know
3: too much about, you know too much. Know. <laughs> well, uh, Joe, what are you right? What do you hold like, on. write
2: about cars for a living? <laughs> Here <laughs>
3: also just, get... just heard about this. Here's a little tidbit. Uh I don't know if it was uh Mitt Romney's dad or a different president, but did Mitt not did
1: Mitt of, Romney was no, not no. a president.
3: <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm talking about the president of AMC, his dad. Oh. Uh if he thought that he was paid too much in a year, he would uh, forego his salary If you know, pending if he thought he was being paid too much or not.
1: That's pretty cool. Like based one. on his performance? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's,
3: it's like a Japanese thing, right? Don't they? A lot of CEOs in Japan do that?
1: That's interesting. But I saw Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, forego his salary this year. So I guess now he only has infinite money
2: <laughs>
1: it's like it's oh i cool. made him richer <laughs> <laughs> yeah like yeah
2: yeah i don't have to pay taxes this year so uh <laughs> i am richer sadly yeah. though james george mason would not live <laughs> to see his plan through to completion uh just five months after the merger george passed away due to complications with pancreat- pancreatitis and pneumonia uh the, he was- the the double p yeah that is a uh that's a really bad one-two punch there. Uh, he was 63... Yeah, you heard at the top, you heard at the bottom. Yeah, he was 63 years old. His replacement was his protege and AMC's vice president, a man born in a Mormon colony south of the border in Chihuahua, Mexico, and who would later become Michigan's governor in 1962. Uh, do you guys want to take any guesses as to what his name was?
3: <laughs> uh, Joseph Smith. George... Uh,
2: George... LW, (laughs) but it it was George Romney, uh, as Joe said earlier. George Romney.
3: I'm really sorry. I I ruined that. (laughs) It's okay.
2: No, you just know a lot. It's fine. Uh, George. (laughs) You know a lot. It's fine. It's like didn't ruin my
1: plan at all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, George got busy making sure his mentor's plan came to fruition, which he was fully equipped to do. He had met Mason when he was working at the American Manufacturers Association and Mason, Shout out to the AMA. That's And uh, I don't think they're around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to all my bros in the AMA. Uh, and Mason took George under his wing around the same time as the Nash-Kelvinator merger. He's like, hey, kid, you got Moxie. Even though he's probably like 40 at the time.
1: That's how people say it. That's very accurate lingo for the time. Probably. Norman. I could tell yeah, you doing f- your research.
3: And 40 was young for someone, you know, an executive at the time. That's true. Yeah.
1: Yeah, people
2: in the 40s and like 50s, people used to live to be 175 years old. <laughs> Sorry. The merger allowed AMC to utilize the strengths of all the companies under its umbrella. The Hornet was allowed to live and would become AMC's medium sedan, complete with a new Packard supplied V8. So it got rid of that dual carb uh, straight six, now it's got the V8. Uh, Nash's Rambler and Metropolitan would cover the compact side and, uh, small cars were actually very important to George Romney. He knew that AMC while larger than ever before, still couldn't take the big three head on with large cars. He believed that if AMC was going to survive, they would have to find their own little pocket in the market and then jam it full of small cars. Just fill it.
1: So in (laughs) 1957, the Hudson and Nash nameplates were dropped and the Rambler model name became its own brand. The next year, AMC debuted the all-new Rambler American, a small sedan with a size somewhere in between a Volkswagen Beetle and like a typical, normal like American sedan of the time. The timing of the release could not have been more perfect as a recession had just hit, making economical and efficient cars like the American very appealing to customers. George's hunch paid off, and sales doubled in 1958 compared to the previous year. Apparently, small was big. Nice, James. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Compact cars weren't the only standout models AMC had in the stable. Despite Rambler being laser-focused on economy, releasing ads with slogans like, Why don't we enter high-performance Rambler V8s in racing? Because the only race Rambler cares about is the
2: human race nice
1: that's wow. a
3: weird campaign It's <laughs> <That's> long <laughs> it
2: kind of yeah it doesn't really uh roll off the tongue very well uh, but, uh wait maybe i can deliver it better i think i can deliver it better all right this
1: is like how i feel like it was pitched all right let's in hear the it room. let's hear it so it's like you know seeing the poster right behind you, it things covered it up it's like why don't we enter high performance rambler v8s in racing and like all the exact that's the ad guy talking that's the don draper yeah, And then all the execs get, like, nervous because they've already told him. They don't want to mention that, okay? They don't want to yeah. bring it up. They're like, oh, God, what's this guy doing? And then he pulls the reveal because the only race Rambler cares about is the human race.
2: Oh, yeah, I love it. Oh. Yeah, I love it. Oh, okay, really Okay. Good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you have See, I nervous there for a sec. Yeah.
1: Can I give a, Can just, I
3: give my take on it? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. I think it's more of just like a joker. So he's oh, like, okay. why don't we enter high performance Rambler V8s in racing?" Because because the only race Rambler cares about is the human race. <laughs> Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay, yeah. I mean I could see that happening too. Definitely.
3: I think they were thinking about the Joker when that came. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think Batman had just come out. So like the Joker I think had just premiered in like detective comic number eleven or something earlier that week. I think I actually read this, Joe. I think you're right. And uh, and Heath Ledger's Joker was based on that Joker from that comic.
3: From the right. Rambler ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Rambler still needed to put out a performance car of their own. So they combined their compact platform, their smallest car, with the big V8 from their biggest car, the Ambassador. So basically classic move. Uh, John DeLorean did this too. Um just take the biggest – so did Carol Shelby. And like every time it happens, people are like, whoa, huh, wow, we didn't think of that. And it's just like, <laughs> hey, what if we took the biggest motor and put it in the smallest car? It's like, oh, it turns out it's faster. <laughs> uh, the four-door sedan weighed just over 3,300 pounds. And the 327 cubic inch engine made 255 horsepower, which gave the car a superb power-to-weight ratio. The appropriately named Rambler Rebel hell yeah. was the fastest. Fo- yeah, hell yeah, dude, was the fastest four door car for sale in the U.S. Second in speed only to the Chevy Corvette. It could be argued that the Rebel is America's first muscle car. The Rebel was available with only one paint option: metallic silver with gold trim down the side. Oh,
3: that sounds so, cool.
1: Yeah, it cost twenty seven hundred eighty six dollars, or about twenty six thousand bucks today. Rambler produced fifteen hundred rebels, which meant Rambler only produced. Yeah, they only made about fifteen hundred of these cars, which means they're probably really hard to find. Yeah, uh, which I I know this is one hundred percent a Nolan car. Oh, dude,
2: it's so ugly. Uh, but it's uh, it's pretty. It's pretty. The the styling has not aged well. But I would I would really love to find one of these things. They're I, I just think they're so cool. I mean, it's basically like an American M3 in the fifth from the fifties, you know? It's like oh, yeah. it's so cool. I love it. Drop it down a little what bit. I said
3: about that color scheme. It's pretty gnarly. It kinda <laughs> sucks. <laughs> it's a-
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Joe. When I heard it, I was like, oh, I bet that looks great. That's like Ricky Bobby's dad's car. <laughs> no, it's
2: but it's, it's not it's, it's not really gold. It's more of a copper. It's it's yeah. polarizing okay. for sure. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, I would love to find one of those drop it down on some bags maybe or like really low suspension uh i think it'd be <laughs> so we just want to take old like stuff and bag it yeah <laughs> like you and me when we're
1: old are just going to be at like bob's big boy and <laughs> you're going to have like <laughs> in burbank Hell yeah. you're going to have like a bagged rambler and i'll be with like my bagged horseless carriage
3: carriage <laughs> Another vanilla milkshake,
1: toots. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make it too spicy this time. Last time you made it too
2: spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Meanwhile, in Europe, uh, France was still recovering from World War II. Under German occupation, a provisional puppet government was set in place called the Vichy. The Germans had claim over northern and western France and allowed the Vichy government to watch over the rest. This saved the Nazis considerable administrative labor and also allowed them to lean on the Vichy to make sure resistance was kept to a minimum. The Vichy government had their own militia separate from the French military whose only task was to find and neutralize pockets of French freedom fighters. It should go without saying, but after the war, the Vichy were not popular people. In a 1946 speech, former General Charles de Gaulle Uh, ...laid out his vision for post-war France, highlighted by an executive branch separate from Congress. He would not...
3: Nolan, it's Charles de Gaulle.
2: I can't do French. I'm just going to pronounce it my way. Uh, (laughs) He would not be the president for over 10 years, but his vision for France was popular nonetheless... Things really started getting crazy when one of France's territories, Algeria, started fighting for independence. European colonists in Algeria, around one million people, were worried that France would forget about them if Algeria did break free. So the French army within Algeria eventually gained power, which spurred fear back in home in France that coups might happen in the rest of France's territories. So the government dissolved itself in 1958, and Charles, Char, sorry, Charles de Gaulle was entrusted with writing the new constitution.
3: I think that's that like, was pretty good.
1: Yeah, that's like sort of like eerily responsible, right? Like basically from my understanding, they were like, hey, like, I think these guys are gonna resist us. So, and we're like basically everywhere right now. Apparently we messed up. Why don't we just start from scratch? <laughs> Sorry, everybody, right?
3: <laughs> oh, I was talking about Nolan's pronunciation of Charles de Gaulle. Oh. But I agree with you.
2: Charles established an executive branch with a president and a prime minister, which took away some power from the Senate and National Assembly, that's what they call their Congress. But in some citizens' eyes, this action could have been seen as a direct power grab from the French people and working class. De Gaulle must have uh, realized this, and in 1962, he pushed for an amendment to the constitution that made the presidency a popularly democratic elected position. So at first it was just like, all right, I'm president now, And then now it's elected. Uh, De Gaulle became France's first elected president since 1848 in 1965. And he held the position until 1968 after 10 years in office. Uh, I'm telling you guys this so you get an idea for the kind of place France was back then. It was still a place that remembered how Germany had treated them. uh, Remembered how some of their own countrymen had sold out resistance fighters. A place that finally returned to normalcy. It was a tumultuous time. A time that bred a few revolutionaries. Ooh, foreshadowing.
1: Yeah, Nolan, I couldn't tell that you were
2: foreshadowing because you didn't talk out of the side of your mouth. (laughs) I've- No! (laughs) I'm not gonna bring that back. Joe really dislikes it, so I'm not gonna (laughs) do it.
1: You're a good friend, you're a good friend. A time that bred a few revolutionaries. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Well, back in America, AMC was struggling. George Romney's small economy cars that had lifted the company up just a few years before were no longer viable. The recession was over and people had money to spend on fun cars, fast cars. The muscle car era that the Rambler helped ignite 10 years before was now in full swing, baby. The rising popularity of pro-stock drag racing meant that the cars people saw at the strip were readily available in the showroom. Offerings from the big three like the Charger, the Gran Torino, the Chevelle, they were all tearing off of dealer lots. Gas was cheap and Americans wanted that sweet, sweet Purse baby. Now, in addition to the OG Rambler, which entered its fifth generation in 1968, AMC also introduced what would become its most famous model. AMC needed an answer to Detroit's pony cars, the Mustang and the Camaro. The Mustang in particular was a freaking game changer for the industry. It was cheap, it was fun, and Ford sold literally millions of them. Venture capitalist Robert Beverly Evans saw what Ford was doing and thought AMC should do the same. So, he bought 200,000 shares of AMC and quickly gained a seat on the board of directors. AMC's mission was to beat Mustang. To do that, they built a car named after a stick that you throw. <laughs> <laughs> the spear. It yeah. was ah, oh, no, close, close.
3: The, uh, the AMC, uh, uh,
1: the fetch, the fetch, the harpoon, uh, harpoon.
2: Uh no, no, you warmer. Uh, stick that you throw. Uh, uh, nunchuck, no. Um, That's two sticks. No jug. The devil stick. The Diabolos. uh. (laughs) It was called the AMC Javelin. Ah, there you
3: go. Oh, man.
1: Now, the Javelin shared many characteristics with the Mustang. It was a two-door coupe with fastback styling that looked like it was made for the racetrack. So, AMC took it to the racetrack. But they didn't go the typical route and race it at NASCAR ovals just yet. As executive vice president, Roy Chapin didn't think they could compete with the established programs like Ford and GM. AMC took the Javelin racing. Now I'm talking, honestly, as far as like the way cars look, this is the coolest kind of racing, I think, in the history of- In basic. terms of That's looks. what I personally think.
2: Yeah. I'm talking about Trans Am racing. Yeah. Road racing, baby. The Sports Car Club of America's Group 2 was the place to be for amateur racers looking to prove their worth behind the wheel of the two-door sports car. Group 2 had three classes based on engine displacement. Anywhere from less than one liter, I can't imagine what kind of cars those were, <laughs> uh, all the way to five liters. Uh, in, the series first, in the series' first year, the SCCA hosted 50 Group 2 races all across the U.S., Clearly, the idea of racing America's best passenger cars around our most iconic racetracks was very popular, and so began the Trans-American Sedan Championship. Uh, so, that's, that was the series for the pros, because Group 2 was for amateurs. According to thecarsource.com, quote, this series of races was made up of seven professional races at different tracks across the U.S. The manufacturer with the most points at the end of the series would win the first-ever manufacturer's trophy. The Trans Am races, as it became known, ranged from 200 miles to 2,400 miles. The races ran from 2 hours to 24 hours and required pit stops for gas and tires. Uh, there are now just two classes, less than 2 liters, and more than 2 liters. That's it, with the cutoff at 5 liters, or 305 cubic inches. The early dominator of Trans Am was none other than our boy, Carroll Shelby and his who, who? G- and his GT350s based off the Ford Mustang. Back at AMC, Roy Chapin figured for AMC to become cool, the Javelin would have to become the dominant force in Trans-Am just like Shelby had done with his pony cars. There was just one problem. AMC had none of the tools necessary to make this plan happen. Have you guys ever tried to do anything without the proper tools? It's uh, nearly yeah. impossible. Uh it sucks. yeah.
1: It's not fun. uh, Like putting together like an IKEA dresser and like you're like, oh, I don't have any of this stuff.
2: Oh man, I can't put together <laughs> my, my my skull hobbin. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's like just like, oh, my tools are at work. Oh no, I, my hands are going to hurt now.
3: Oh <laughs> man, I really want to put together my Warhammer army, but I don't have <laughs> tiny paintbrushes.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, I really. For a while I was looking into Warhammer stuff just because um, you <laughs> Dude, know, why you not? You should
3: totally do Warhammer.
2: <laughs> Dude, I think, yeah. Is there like a game
1: involved with it? Could we like play each other or something? We could play the computer version
2: so. easiest, I think. Yeah,
1: well, I'm just saying, like, I've I've also been looking into hobbies, you know, considering the current situation. Yeah. And uh I'm looking at like RC stuff. Oh, RC for um, sure. I'm getting back to that. Yeah, maybe like just like scale models in general that don't move. Um, I don't know, but we can we can talk offline about this. But uh, <laughs> uh, you mentioned a hobby. I am one hundred percent down, and I think it'd be fun if we all got into the same one.
3: I think that'd be super fun. Yeah,
1: sweet. Uh, can't I can't? Well, let's get through this script so we can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Racing programs at the big three manufacturers were defined by their performance divisions race engineering departments, and engine development teams. Developing a car that can be both a consumer success and winner at the track took a lot of resources, resources that AMC lacked. But somehow, AMC managed to scrape together two seasons, running on the absolute minimum imaginable for a factory team. In 1968, they were the only team to finish every race, earning them a third-place finish out of three manufacturers. Yeah, not bad. Earning, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> in, in 1969, the Javelin was so far behind development-wise that the team resorted to using parts made by other manufacturers to make up the difference. An OEM front cross member was developed so the Jav could use suspension components from the Ford Mustang, That's as so well as spindles. I love that, dude. As well as spindles that could be fitted with the superior Lincoln disc brakes. Lead engineer Ronnie Kaplan even ordered a new engine block from the AMC foundry that allowed it to be used with Chevy connecting rods for more engine stroke.
2: I love this so much. They're just like, dude, we can't do this on our own. Let's just lean on everyone else. It's Is that I mean, like cheating? Is that legal? No, because they were like the OEM stuff with I mean you could get that front um so like you could buy that front cross member for your Javelin and use Mustang parts and stuff. It's Oh man. It's wild. That's
3: I'm sure awesome. the other companies were like, "Yeah, you won because you used our freaking our parts." So it's a <laughs> it's like a way for them to, you know, Flaunt their too.
1: Yeah, I can imagine putting that on a 60s advertisement poster.
2: And I don't think it was scrutinized very hard because at this time they still weren't doing very well. So I think yeah. the 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 stewards kind of let it slide.
1: Anyway. Yeah. Continue. Well, the when this stuff didn't work, they did start cheating. They made fiberglass <laughs> fenders to lighten the car. Uh, but when stewards tested the body panels with magnets to make sure they were stock,
2: the jig was up. Yep. Fiberglass is not magnetic.
1: <laughs>
3: oh, we didn't, we didn't know they had magnets.
1: Ah, oh, why didn't you say they had magnets? <laughs> oh. Is that like the
3: racing equivalent of like biting a coin to see if it's metal? Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously,
1: things were not well at AMC, um, and as a result, they finished dead last behind Chevy, Ford, and Pontiac, scoring only 14 points. After the last race at Riverside, Kaplan was obviously fired. (laughs) So who would AMC trust with their sinking racing program? If only they could get someone with back-to-back championship wins and an entire program of people who knew what the heck they were doing.
3: If only... If only, man. If only. If only. If if only. If, If only. (laughs) <laughs> if
2: only. Uh, driver Mark Donahue had won back-to-back championships with Roger Penske Racing behind the wheel of a navy blue Camaro sporting yellow wheels and red headlights. This thing is pretty gnarly looking.
3: It's a but, McDonald's car. <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's, the,
2: it's, the, it's like Grimace, basically. <laughs> but despite the
1: winning yeah, record. Yeah, it's like Oshkosh Bogosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, Joe, you're from Wisconsin. What is the bagash yeah. about?
3: Uh, by gosh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's probably <laughs> something they say up there. So yeah, Mark
2: Donahue is winning with that Camaro. But despite the winning record, things weren't very peachy between Penske Racing and Chevy. So Penske actually broke off the partnership. Uh, this was per- This was perfect timing for AMC. They offered Penske $2 million, the equivalent of 13 today to right the ship and get the Javelin some freaking wins. Uh, Penske accepted the offer and started by selling off the old race cars and equipment. Penske wanted to start fresh and he only kept one Javelin so his team could establish a baseline to compare the new cars against. During testing, guys, they discovered that the Javelin suspension was pretty much bottomed out at all times, which made it even more impressive that Kaplan's team was able to drive the car at all. Penske engineer Ron Cox redesigned the entire rear suspension and also came up with a system that allowed the team to change out brake disc rotors as easily as brake pads, which helped them immensely during longer races because they spent less time changing those components out.
1: Oh, for sure.
2: The other teams were never able to figure out how the Penske team did that. And, but unfortunately, that's about the only thing the Penske Javelin team was able to pull off that year. The car was plagued with oil starving issues that they were never able to figure out. Penske was able to win three races that year Falling short of his preseason Promise of winning seven
1: So I just imagine like the whole crew Like after the season And they're just like feeling real down On their luck and just like sad And they're like One guy like pipes up and he's like Well At least we can change our brakes really fast <laughs> and like Yeah I mean that's something right Yeah <laughs> And then then they just, like, look back into their beers. (laughs) Now, a rule change for 1971 meant that the cars could run with a dry sump setup, meaning the engine's oil was stored outside of the engine, and that solved the starvation problems that ruined their previous seasons. That is a very, very fortunate rule change. Yeah, well, it's one, like, Penske,
2: uh, uh, if you can imagine this, Penske uh lobbied heavily for this rule. Oh, change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I imagine <Influenced>. so, like
1: <laughs> they like figured out like, all right, here's what we need to win. And he, I think he may have greased some palms and taken some guys out for some big old just honking steak dinners. Uh I wanna make a just like no one would watch it, but maybe a movie about just the um the lobbying for that rule change. <laughs> <laughs> um it was a very good rule change and now that the car could run The Javelin was an absolute missile at the track, fulfilling Penske's promise of seven wins, finally earning AMC the championship they set out to get four years earlier. But the victory was bittersweet, as the other factory teams had backed out, citing the rising costs of Trans Am Racing. That sucks, dude. So AMC wasn't able to claim that they had beat Ford, Chrysler, and GM, even if their competition was still driving them on track. However, the win did cement the brand as a plucky underdog and made the Javelin
2: an all-time classic. All right, so join us next week as we find out what happened to AMC after the AMC Javelin. Uh, We'll find out who George Bess is in the first place, how he came to be the head of Renault, and we'll find out who, who killed him. Um, it's a pretty wild story, so join us next week. As always, follow us at Donut Media on all social media. Follow James at James Pumphrey. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. And follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Thank you. Just thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with a conclusion of George Best and AMC. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy, so so tune in.
0: In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance.